Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 1. It reads like this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around the chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Holy, merciful God. You tell us that you will bless those who hear the words from this book. We pray that you would bless us this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith and our witness, and that you would give hope to weary souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You know, in in life, there's usually a handful of of days in your life that you you don't forget, you know, like the birth of your children and their weird little heads, you know, and and things like that, you know, things are burned into your memory for your whole life. And one of those days is, of course, you know, for those who've been married, your wedding day. And, uh, you know, one of the traditions on on a wedding day is that you don't see the bride, um, bride and groom don't see each other until that moment when when the bride's walking down the aisle. And, uh, you know, and Jen and I were a fan of of this particular tradition. And so, you know, we didn't even take pictures beforehand. There was no cheating involved in this. We took, we made our people wait for dinner. So we took the pictures after the wedding. Um, And so, but I remember, at least this is how I remember it. Jen will correct me later uh, in in private. But the way I remember it was, you know, me and my brothers were my groomsmen and photographer. We were taking our individual photos before and we were in the car driving and on the road in front of us was actually Jen and her dad. And I just remember her like being scared. She didn't want me to see her. And so uh, like I saw this like flash of white, you know, as she's like covering herself and I didn't see her. So everything was all safe. Um, but, uh, but you know, the reason why you do this is because you want that first moment, that unveiling to happen on, on, in, in the moment, in the ceremony, right? When you know, and there's this whole prelude that leads up to it. You know, you get the procession and the, the groom and his men are standing up front. And you get the procession of the bridesmaids and the, the parents and all that stuff. And then finally, you get to that moment and everyone stands and then in walks the bride and she looks radiant. And, you know, as Jen walked in, she's radiant. And as she's walking in, walking towards me, there's everything I can do just to take her in. You know, that's why the one that's about to walk slow because like, yeah, take me in. And so you do, you take her in from head to toe, you know, just looking up and down. Of course, she's taking me in because I'm standing up front and she's super lucky. But, but this is what happens, right, in, in a wedding, right? You're, you're, you're taking each other in as you're, as you're being unveiled. And, and this is kind of the image that's actually being given to us here in Revolution, Revelation. As we dive into this passage this morning, I, I want us to keep this image 
actually have a wedding before our, our, our minds. Because if you remember from our first sermon on Revelation, the word revelation, which is in the Greek, is apocalypto, which means apocalypse, actually means to unveil something. And it's a word that's most often used to talk about the unveiling of one's nakedness, to see them clearly. And so revelation is many things, but one of the primary things it is, is actually the unveiling of Christ to his bride, to his church, to his people, right? And the whole story ends in a, in a wedding, right? And before John even can get to the vision that he's seeing and, and writing it down so we can know what, what Jesus showed him, uh, he simply takes a moment here and describes Jesus from head to toe. Jesus is being unveiled before him. And he takes them all in, like a groom beholding his bride as we walked down the aisle. And much of this actually mimics what you find even in the, the great book, The Song of Songs, which is this kind of love poetry between a, between a shepherd and the shepherdess, that they kind of poetry back and forth. And there's actually a couple of different times where they actually describe each other from head to toe. This is, listen to the, the woman's words here. This is from Song of Songs. It says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. And it goes on and on and on and on. Lots of nice, fun descriptors. But this is kind of like what's happening here. This, this is the kind of same kind of moment that's happening here. Which, you know, when you consider the context of Revelation, Revelation written to the church in modern-day Turkey, a church that was suffering under much tribulations, a church that was, was being decimated and persecuted, it seems like a, a strange thing for John to begin with when he begins writing about the vision. Uh, how, how can this uh, help a desperate, suffering church, a church needing uh, relief from their pain? How does this description of Jesus actually help them? I mean, who cares what he looked like? Just help us, please. So why does he do this? Well, I think they needed this and we need this because in the midst of tribulations and struggles, in the midst of weariness and hopelessness, I think the first thing we end up forgetting is the essentials. Kind of like a marriage. When conflict comes, you, you forget the, the beauty of your bride on your wedding day. But John is beginning this letter describing Christ from head to toe because what a suffering church needs more than anything, what St. Andrew's church needs more than anything is to behold your Savior. The answer to your suffering is actually found in beholding Christ is what we'll find here. To which you might think, well, that sounds good on paper. Yeah, we need to behold Jesus, but what good does it really do just to stare at somebody? Uh, how does that actually help? Well, what does it help to behold him? Well, to behold Christ is more than just to take a glance at him. But to behold him is to take him in. It's to know him. To know his work. To know his purpose in this world. And this is exactly the thing you need in distress. And so this description of Jesus is going to reveal three things for us. There are profound hope and comfort for us. Uh, the three things are this. That Jesus is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. Which, you know, in the Old Testament, these are the, the, the three different offices that, that God gave to his people to govern them. Which were prophets, priests, and kings, right? The prophets just spoke the word of God to the people. The priests kind of mediated grace to God through, mediated the grace and forgiveness of sins through just sacrifices. And the kings kind of governed, you know, the, all of the land. And so these were the three main, main offices that God used to govern his people. What we find here is these three offices are fulfilled fully, in Christ. 
And uh, this is the kind of best way to describe who Jesus is and what he has come to do is to fulfill these three offices in himself. And so this morning, we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to behold the wonder and the majesty of our Savior together. Talking about how Jesus is revealed to us as prophet, priest, and king. So first, Jesus is revealed to us as our priest. Jesus is revealed to us as our priest. Look at me back here in, in verse 12. He says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And so you kind of have this moment where, you know, John was, he tells us, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, so he's worshiping, maybe with other people who were also exiled to this island, we don't know, but he's worshiping on a Sunday, and he's in the spirit, and he hears this voice, and so he turns to see who's speaking to them, and he begins to describe to us what he's seen, and then after this little section, starting next week, it's going to be just us, basically almost to the very end of the book, talking about the vision that he received from Jesus. And, uh, and so he begins describing, the first thing he describes is what? The seven golden lampstands. You know, when you read about this, um, commentators point out that whenever you see lampstands being mentioned here, you're immediately supposed to be thinking of the tabernacle because it's in reference to the, to the menorah, the candle that was in the tabernacle. And if you don't remember, you, you never learned what the tabernacle is, you can go back to the time of Moses, right, when the Israelites were, were, were escaped from Egypt and on the way to the promised land, um, the people were dwelling in tents on their way, and God said to the people, listen, you're in tents, I want to dwell in a tent with you, and so they made this tabernacle, which was this tent for God, and when they set up camp, the tabernacle was in the middle, and all the tribes were kind of set, set around the side of it, so God wanted to be in their midst, it's where God dwelled with his people, heaven on earth, and in the tabernacle, there were, there were two specific rooms, uh, one was the Holy of Holies, which had the Ark of the Covenant inside, and the Ten Commandments, and uh, the other room was called the holy place. And in the holy place, it had bread, incense burning, and this lampstand. And so immediately, when we think about this lampstand, the room that is in our mind should be this, this uh, holy place. This is where we are. And why is this important? Because you see this in verse 13. And, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a, a son of man clothed with a long robe and a white sash around his chest. So you find out there's a, there's a person in that room. And now this is important. The only people that were allowed in that room were the priests. Um, this, the only people that could go into those rooms in the tabernacle were priests who would tend to the candles and the incense and the bread. And uh, verse 13 tells us that it's the Son of Man who is in the midst of them, which is, we know, the Son of Man is Jesus. And so Jesus is being revealed to us as this priest, fulfilling his priestly duties. And this image is actually further cemented that this is what we're supposed to be thinking about because of what Jesus is wearing here. This, this white robe and this sash. This is priestly clothing that Jesus has put on. So Jesus is being revealed to us as our priest. So what does that mean for us? How does that help us that Jesus is a priest? Well, what comfort does this, does this give us to behold? Well, I think there's three aspects to his priestliness that are being described here. Uh, first, we see that Jesus is in the midst of his people. You know, we find out later at the end of this section that, that the lampstands represent the, the churches in modern-day Turkey that he's writing to here. Uh, and he's in the midst of these lampstands, lamp, lampstands with his people. He's present. And what is he doing? Well, he's doing the things that priests did, which is they tended to the candles that they would keep burning continually, filling the oil, trimming the, 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 the wicks. What this tells us is Jesus is with his church to make sure she keeps burning brightly. 
And, you know, we're about to go through, you know, the seven letters that were written to these seven churches, and they're both full of encouragement. Like, yeah, keep on going, keep the faith, but also lots of rebuke. And Jesus does this because he desires for the light of the church to remain strong, to burn brightly, which both requires encouragement and correction, right? The persecuted church needed to be tended to lest they give in to the world. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's in our midst, convicting of sin, drawing us to repentance and holiness, trimming out the sin of our lives that we might burn brightly. And this requires work because we're a people who have a tendency to let our lights go out. But Jesus is among us as our priests, refilling us, equipping us, strengthening us, keeping our fires burning. And this, you find this amazing picture of Christ's work that he is with us, he is near, he's in our midst. But not only as a priest is he in our midst tending to us, second we find he is the old and wise priest. You know, a friend makes a joke that, you know, what, what people want in a pastor is the old and wise pastor, right? The one who always knows the right thing to say, who's a great comfort, who's mature in faith and life. And well, that's not a description of, of me or many pastors, right? But the thing is, you actually have that, that old wise person in Christ. I have it in him too. And I need a pastor too. I, I need him to be my priest. And verse 14 actually points this out for us as it describes his head. He says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. It's a beautiful description. Speaking of his hair like white wool, which has a couple allusions. Uh, further in Revelation, it's, Jesus is going to appear as, a, as an actual lamb. And I think what's one of the allusions is this, this wool, this, this, white as, this wool that's as white as a lamb's wool. It means that he is, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the priest's duty was to mediate the grace to his people, forgiving sins, doing these sacrifices for, on behalf of the people. And this is what Jesus is doing. He mediates grace by his own blood. He himself is the sacrifice that cleanses them. It's one of the first connections you see here. But the second connection, and maybe more direct connection here, is actually back to Daniel again. For, for one, uh, he's called the son of man here. And in Daniel, that's where we get some of that language of son of man. So we get this Daniel connection. And, uh, and then, and then you, you see this uh, in Daniel 7. It says this about the son of man. Let's see if this sounds familiar to our passage here. It says this. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. It's a connection to Daniel for us. What John is seeing as he looks upon Jesus is the ancient of days. He's saying Jesus is the ancient of days. He is the eternal one. He isn't like the priests of old who, who come and go. He isn't like the pastors who rise and fall, but he is the constant. He is the one who always was and always will be. He is the stable one. He isn't like the sacrifices of old that had to be repeated over and over and over again. He is the final sacrifice. He is the one you need tending to your flame, to the flame of the church that it might burn brightly. Who better to have as our priest? Who better to have in your midst tending to your life, to those gentle places that you don't want anyone to go but Christ? And this is what he's doing, tending to your flame, tending to your life, which means that when we struggle, when we need counsel, when we need forgiveness, you can actually go straight to Jesus. He is there in your midst, speaking words of comfort and correction, leading you in your life. This is who Jesus is, the ancient of days. And the third and final aspect of his priestliness that we see is there at the end of verse 14 when it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
You know, the eyes are this organ of discernment and judgment, and we have a priest who sees us, right, flaming and burning with love for us, his bride, who judges not by our own works, but by his works of righteousness, and who knows, the, who knows among us the mystery of our hearts. But your faithful priest does. He looks upon you. He sees you. He sees the real you that most people won't see. And he burns with love for you because you are his. Jesus is this priest who is in our midst. He is keeping our flames burning. He is your eternal priest. He is the ancient of days. He is the priest who can see you and love you, applying the balm of grace to you, taking away your sin, becoming the sacrificial lamb himself that you might have life in him. For a suffering church, this is a comforting thing to know that he isn't the God who is far off, who is away from them, who isn't near them in the, in, among their troubles, but he is the one who is right next to them, who is suffering alongside of them, giving his life for his people. And he is still working on them and in them to make them holy as he is holy. Jesus is our priest. But he isn't just our priest, he is also our king. This is the second thing that's revealed here is that Jesus is revealed as our king. Jesus is revealed as our king. We see this begin to be alluded to here in verse 15. It says, and his feet, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. You know, this again is a, a reference uh, to the book of Daniel. You know, if you don't remember Daniel, Daniel was in the, the southern kingdom when Babylon came and invaded in the sixth century BC and was taken back to Babylon as an exile. And, uh, and the, the king in Babylon at the time was King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the beginning of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has, these, has this crazy dream that no one can interpret, and, uh, but Daniel could because the Lord uh, told, told Daniel what, what this dream was about. And in Daniel 2, he, he tells the king about this dream. And the, and the dream was of this man that was made of different kinds of, of metal. And Daniel got his interpretation from God that the different parts of this metal man represented some of the great empires of old that happened from Babylon to the time of Rome. And you know, the head was Babylon, the chest was Persia who conquered the Babylonians, the bronze was the Greeks who defeated the Persians, and the legs of the iron was the Roman Empire who defeated the Greeks. And, uh, and in this vision, you find that these empires will rise and they will fall. And as this happened, uh, uh, there was gonna be one that would come from God who would replace them and fill the earth. And so it's speaking about this, this, this empire that comes from God who replaces all the empires of the earth and will one day fill the earth. And verse 15 is a reference back uh, to the dream of this metal man, bringing us back to the, the dream about the empires of this world. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this dream, right? He is the king that is coming to replace all the kings of the earth and his kingdom is the final forever kingdom. And what is this kingdom made up of? Well, it's made up of his body. His kingdom is his body. And what is Jesus' body? But Jesus' body is the church. So through his church, Jesus is building this eternal kingdom that even now extends to the far-reaching corners of the world. And this began here with the early church, which still grows and, and, and stands strong. Right? In the last 2,000 years, Many kingdoms have come and risen and fallen, right? And yet the church has remained. And not only has the church remained, but the church has grown and spread and expanded, right? The church is the great kingdom that is growing and replacing the kingdoms of man. 
Jesus is our king and the, the great king over the cosmos and his kingdom is growing and expanding all over the earth. But many people, you know, look at the world in the West and maybe tempted to think, but it doesn't seem like it's working. It seems like the church maybe is fading like every other, every other empire has faded. It's come and gone. But friends, this cannot be further from the truth. You know, there are more Christians on earth now than there were people on the planet when Jesus was alive. Think about that. The church is working. And although the church in the West might be declined based on our, our metrics of church attendance and church growth and the amount of churches that there are, global Christianity is at an all-time high. The church is exploding all over the world in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Jesus' kingdom is working. And one day it will fill this earth because he tells us it will. And Jesus is the one true king who actually can accomplish this task. And one day, even in the West, in places like America and Washington State, it will grow again here too. You can believe this because Jesus is the one doing this and he tells us his work works. Jesus is the eternal king building his kingdom through his body, the church. And think about this, to people who are being persecuted, killed for their faith by the kings of their day, they needed to hear this truth that there was a king over those kings. That Jesus wasn't just building this metaphorical kingdom, but a real one, one made of flesh and bone, a physical one here on earth. They needed to know that their suffering wasn't in vain, but that Jesus would use their sufferings to build his kingdom. And through, though persecutions and death come, nothing could stop its growth. In fact, persecutions and death have only helped the church grow wherever it's happened. Nothing can stop the expansion of Christ and his kingdom. This should give us profound hope that, that no matter what we're going through, no matter our present day circumstances, the kingdom and the purposes of God will not be thwarted. Jesus is the God who is near, the God who is active. He doesn't come just to sit next to you, but he comes to actually work, right? He comes to fight beside you. And they needed to hear this. They needed to know that they had a priest who was near. They needed to know that they had a king who was building an empire that would outlast every other kingdom. And so do we. As we live in this part of the world that's in decline, we need the bigger picture, lest we lose hope. That Jesus' kingdom works. And then we need to keep sowing the seeds of that kingdom, trusting Jesus to do what he does best to grow the seeds that we sow. So Jesus is the great priest. He is, he is our great king, building his kingdom. But there's one more thing that they needed Jesus to be. And there's one, one more thing that, that, that this vision of Jesus tells us about. And that Jesus is also our prophet. Jesus is revealed as the prophet. Jesus is revealed as our prophet. So what is a, a prophet? Well, many people, when you think about prophets, you think about prophecies and future telling and all that. And of course, there are some degrees of future telling that happens when prophets spoke. But more than just future telling, prophets were the mouthpieces of God. Like their statements were, thus saith the Lord. So God would speak to them and they would speak the things to the people that God said to them. And in this, more than just telling the future, really what the prophets did was they revealed God's purposes in the world that people might know him. And here we, we find Jesus speaking and revealing God's purposes in the world. It begins with, you know, in verse 12 here, when John is sitting there and he says he turned and, and to see the voice that was speaking. And so there's this voice that's speaking. The vision begins with this voice, much like, you know, the book of Genesis begins with this voice that calls all that is into being. Then, then the, the end of this section tells us what this voice that he heard was like. Verse 15 to 16 he says his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a powerful vision, right? His voice is like the roar of waters, and from his mouth was this sharp two-edged sword, and this is reference to the prophet Isaiah, who was said to have a mouth of like a sharp sword. So saying, Jesus is the last Messiah. I mean, the last Isaiah, the, the final prophet. Hebrews 1 puts it like this. In Hebrews 1, at the very beginning, it says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this is who Jesus is. He has come to us as this final prophet. He is the, the final word speaking so that we might know God. And think about this. How, how do we know what we know about who God is? Well, it's because he reveals it to himself through his prophets, right? Each author of scripture revealing another piece of this puzzle, revealing who God is and what his purposes are in the world. And here Jesus comes, right? The final prophet, the final unveiling, saying this is who I am. I am the son of God, God in the flesh. And as John's gospel tells us, his word in flesh to behold Jesus then is to behold God himself and his purposes in this world. So in Jesus, we have a God, God himself coming to speak to his people, revealing himself to us and his bride as, as the God who speaks to his people. Jesus comes because he wants you to know him. He wants you to know who he is. He just, he's not trying to hide his purposes from you, but he comes speaking them like a roar of many waters and waters there for this purifying, right? This is what this voice comes to do to purify his people to make us righteous as he is righteous, but also as a sword to convict. Jesus is the final prophet, the final word to make himself known to us as people. And this is what the early church needed to hear. This is what we need too, right? That Jesus is the, the priest in our midst, tending to our flames, keeping our fires burning because we're a people who quickly lose hope, right? Jesus is the eternal king expanding his kingdom through his body, the church, which we need to hear because we give up on his work sometimes. Jesus is the, the prophet, right? Revealing God's purposes and plans for this world, which we need to hear because we can easily look to the world for our purposes in life. Easily turning from the word of God to the word of man. And so Jesus comes, showing us who he is. It's a beautiful vision of Christ to behold. But you know, this isn't just a beautiful vision of Jesus that's being given to us. But it's actually a beautiful vision of the church that's being given as well. Because all that is said of the appearance of the Son of Man here is also true of his body, the church. As one commentator puts it, as John describes the glorified body of Christ, he also describes the church because we are his body. You know, as the, as the early church was told to behold Christ, they were looking into a mirror. Though they were battered and beaten, though they were bruised and bloodied, they never looked more glorious. Just like Jesus, while blues and bloody on the cross, never looked more exalted. And in this, there's this beautiful transformation happening. Right? The church is seeing her glorified self. You know, in the, the first man, Adam, was made of dust, and Eve was taken from his side, resembling Adam, both of the dust. From dust we come to dust we will return. But the second Adam, Jesus, has now been glorified from dust to this glowing bronze. Right? We, are, we are his new bride, his new Eve taken from his side. And so we too are glorified. 
And at the end of Revelation chapter 21, the bride is, is now made of stones and jewels and the city shines like gold. In Christ, we have been glorified from dust into the sparkling, glorious city, from dust to glory. So as we behold Jesus, as we learn who he is, we actually learn and see who we are as his bride. You church, you St. Andrews are glorified as Christ is glorified. Just like the, the early church, you might not always feel like it in the moment. You might feel weary. You might feel tired. You might feel bruised and battered. But as you behold Christ and his beauty, you behold your own beauty. We are made radiant in him. Because by faith and the power of the spirit, you and I are the body of Christ that's being described here. Which means that these offices of prophet and priest and king that Jesus holds are now ours to take and implement in this world. Right? We behold what we're meant to be in this world. We're supposed to be the prophets who speak and reveal the truths of Scripture. Right? The purposes of life in this world. We're, we're supposed to be the, the priestly ones, bringing the grace and mercy and forgiveness that's found in Christ to bear wherever we find ourselves. We are to be the kingly, not ruling through the might of sword, but through the might of Christ, which is service. Right? Jesus led by laying his life down, building his church up. This is what we're supposed to do, knowing that he is that he is the church, that as a church expands, so his kingdom expands. In other words, as a people, as we behold Christ, as we behold ourselves, it makes us radiate like the great heavenly city at the end of the book. Because this is who we are as we are united to our bridegroom. Jesus is working in and among us to make us radiate like he does. As, as, as bright as the sun shining in full strength, this is what we are meant to reflect in this world. May we behold this beautiful image this morning. And as we behold Jesus in his glory, as we behold his glory, may we reflect the glorified Christ in our own lives, wherever we find ourselves. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which shows us your purposes, your revealed will in this world, which shows us our purpose, shows us who we are. May we believe these words. May we believe these truths. May they transform our souls. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.